Hey moms, welcome to this episode of the Dorenda Wilson podcast. I'm Dorenda, wife to one, mom to eight, nana to 10, and 30-year veteran homeschooling mom. I'm also the author of three, soon to be four books um, that I would love to tell you about. They are The Unhurried Homeschooler, The Four-Hour School Day, and Unhurried Grace for a Mom's Heart. You can find all three of those books at Amazon and also on my website, DorendaWilson.com. The fourth book is coming out March 5th. It is called Raising Boys to Men, a simple, mercifully short book on raising and homeschooling boys. I'm so excited to get this book into the hands of moms. And if you want to be part of sort of the excitement that builds up to that and be part of some freebies and giveaways before launch day, um, just simply subscribe to my email uh, subscriber list. And when you do that, you're actually going to receive free access to Unhurried Grace for a Mom's Heart, the devotional that I wrote specifically for homeschooling moms. So I'll leave a link in the show notes. Make sure you use that link because if you don't, you won't be able to access the, the devotional. Now, also, if you are a mom to teens, please be sure that you listen to the podcast all the way through because I have an important resource to share with you after the prayer. So when people hear about reports to CPS against homeschool families, they tend to think of families with school-age children. But many families are being reported for situations involving, involving even younger children, especially if there is an accidental injury. Membership with our sponsor, Heritage Defense, is not limited to families with just school-age children. Heritage Defense also provides full legal representation to Christian families who intend to homeschool when the time comes. Young children with accidental injuries can often be reported to CPS by medical personnel for innocent accidents. Don't wait for an unexpected injury or other false report of abuse or neglect, you can get peace of mind by signing up with Heritage Defense today. I'm going to include their link, heritagedefense.org, to make it easy for you to find them. I'll also include the link where I share our harrowing story with CPS last year. Today, we're going to talk about gardening and growing a year's worth of sustainable and healthy food. I didn't even know that was possible, but apparently it is. Um, but before I introduce our guest and dive into this topic, let's talk for just a minute about math, because math can be a very challenging part of homeschooling our kids. Maybe you're looking for a new math curriculum. You need to know that CTC Math specializes in providing online video tutorials that take a multi-sensory approach to learning. Creative graphics and animations synchronized with the friendly voice of internationally acclaimed teacher Pat Murray makes learning math easy and effective. It's favorably reviewed by Kathy Duffy's 103 Top Picks and the Old Schoolhouse Crew Review. The lessons are short and concise to help your child break down concepts and appreciate math in a whole new way. Visit ctcmath.com today to start your free trial. That's ctcmath.com. And I'll leave a link in the show notes to that as well. Well, a few months ago, I shared with all of you how we raised and homeschooled our kids in a homestead setting. But as they grew up and moved out, we realized that with the kids gone, we weren't really sure we wanted to keep that lifestyle. We eventually moved across the country from Washington State to North Carolina, and my husband got into the vacation rental business. Fortunately, most of our kids moved with us. We all lived in town for five years, and then our kids came to us and asked if there was any way we could buy property live in community, and start homesteading again. Well, the timing was perfect, and we ended up buying 21 acres with a home that could essentially be split in half living-wise, and two of our other kids are living in tiny houses on either side of us, and we have another son who plans to land on the property with us as well within a year or so. So most of us will be living here. We're really excited about that. Several of us are already living here and we, we're loving it. But when we moved from our land and home in Washington, I was convinced, I actually in my mind was convinced we would never homestead again. Never say never. It was a great way to raise our kids. And now our kids want to raise the grandkids in the same way. So we're pooling our resources and slowly building our homestead. Needless to say, Gardening is one of the first things we're focused on. And so as I was exploring resources for homesteading in general, I ran across Melissa Norris from Pioneering Today and specifically listened to a couple of her podcasts and then dove into her book, The Family Garden Plan, Grow a Year's Worth of Sustainable and Healthy Food. 
So I decided it was time to invite Melissa here today to talk about the basics of growing a garden along with some gardening hacks that can help make preserving our food much easier. So before I dial her in, I want to tell you a little bit about her because you might not know who she is. Many of you probably do, but Melissa Norris helps hundreds of thousands of people each month raise their own food and create a homemade and homegrown kitchen, home garden, and barnyard through her website, Popular Pioneering Today podcast, the Pioneering Today Academy, and her books. She is a co-founder of the Modern Homesteading Conference as well as owner of Norris Farmstead. Melissa is a fifth-generation homesteader and lives with her husband and two kids in their little, their own little house in the big woods in the foothills of the North Cascade Mountains. All right, Melissa, welcome. We're so thankful you're here today. I am really excited to be here. And I did not realize you were from Washington State. I'm in Washington State. I'm like, yes. oh, <laughs> well, yeah, even though you're not here anymore. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, we lived actually uh, 14 years on the west side of the state up in Mount Vernon. And then- <gasps> You're in Skagit? I'm in Rockport. We, we were. Oh, oh my God, I know, sorry. I, know I didn't right realize. Where you are. Yes, you do. I'm like, oh, girlfriend. We were like literally almost neighbors. We're a couple of towns apart. <laughs> yep, exactly. So we, there were 14 years we were there. And then we were 14 years on the east side of the state. So whole different climate. You know, it's wet, yes. damp on the you know, west side. And it's more like Montana, Idaho weather on the east side. So yeah. definitely changing in how you, how you garden. But I wasn't gardening much before we left the west side. So I really didn't get a groove there. But I did on the east side. And then we moved to North Carolina. Oh, my goodness. This is a whole <laughs> other thing. I'm telling you, there is red clay everywhere. I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this. <laughs> yeah, so I have, I've done some s- small gardening, garden consult in Tennessee. And, and okay. as, as to your point, very different soil types. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the basic principles are really the same no matter what. And that's kind okay. of a beautiful thing. So the basic mm. principles are going to work for anyone. And then there's nuances just with anything, right. like a homeschooling your children, right? The basic right. principles work for pretty much any kid, but then there's nuances that you have to to hone into mm-hmm. and pay attention to mm-hmm. um, and and make adjustments. Right, exactly, yeah. and that it's so true. Um, I'm I'm just curious. I I'm always curious what motivates someone to write a book because you know I I'm finishing up my fourth, and I know what my motivations are, but I'm always curious, especially if it's a different topic or subject. So tell us what led you to write the family garden plan. Yeah. The, so the family garden plan, really, I, I have to go backwards. My love for books was from the time I was a little girl. Mm. I grew up in the country and we didn't, we still don't have cable here because we're too far out. They just don't run it. Right? Wow. And so we had an antenna and the only way that you could get TV is if there was snow on the mountain. So in the summertime, there was no TV. And then you had to turn the antenna. And if you were lucky and there was enough snow, you would get more than snow on the screen and just audio, actual picture. And we only got like three <laughs> channels. So suffice to say, I didn't watch TV. Back then, there wasn't really home computers, at least not in our home and, and for most right. people. And I sound mm-hmm. really old right now. I'm 43. I just had my birthday. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up reading and I loved books. And when I was eight years old, I discovered that being an author and writing books was something that you could do as a career. Like that was a job that you could have. And from that time on, I wanted to be an author. That's what I, you know, it's what I wanted to be. Right. And what was really funny about this is I thought I was going to be a historical Christian fiction, specifically romance (laughs) author. Like you said, tell God your plans, right? And he's right. like, I put the seed in you to be a writer, dear, um, but not in that genre. Right. So I, a long, long story of, of trying to get published and having a literary agent and getting my fiction books um, shopped around in interest, but none of it ever came to fruition. Mm. And then one of the editors at Harvest House, who is um, was my publisher for the Family Garden Plan, she rejected my fiction, but she came back and she said, you know, would you write nonfiction for us? Because we've seen your website, we've seen your podcast, like you've got so much information on that. And so many people are hungry for wanting to learn how to do this. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, you're offering me a book contract. I get to be a real author. I don't, well, I do care some about the topic, but yeah, let's do this. (laughs) So, Well, that's um, great. Yeah. But it was really 
so growing up very rurally, my family raised a very large portion of their own food. And mm-hmm. my dad, I know people are going to try to do math here. My father was born and raised as a small child during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, he remarried later in life. And my mom is 20 years younger than my dad. Okay. And so it is actually my dad, not my grandpa. People always question that. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Yes. Um, and so I thought that in my naivety as a child, I thought that everybody raised a garden, raised some of their own food. I thought everybody's mom canned mm-hmm. um, and put food up and in some way was providing their own food source for their family. Of course, that mm. is not the truth. No. Not everybody does that. And so that was something that I was raised with. And usually what you raise your children with, not always, of course, but that's something that you come back to. And mm-hmm. so- I started, I got married at 18. My husband and I are are still married and have our two kids. And I started working as a pharmacy tech right out of high school. And that meant I was obviously not at home during the day, would get home right at dinner time or a little bit thereafter because we were open a little bit later in the evening. And even though I had been raised with a mom who cooked food from scratch and we still don't have like delivery for fast food or Uber Eats or whatever those things are at where we live. We're still very rural. Um, But I found that I was buying convenience items at the store. And so you used to be able to buy, I don't know if you can anymore. They used to have a casserole in a box. Instead of a hamburger helper, it was a casserole (laughs) in a box. Not even in the freezer section, just right on the store shelf. And so I was doing a lot of assembling and heating things in the oven, but I wasn't truly cooking, you know, from scratch or, you know, nutritious, good Right. food. And my health then began to suffer. It took about a decade. And I ended up at 29, right after the, the birth of my second child, my daughter, having to have my esophagus and my upper stomach biopsied for cancer. Mm-hmm. And thankfully it came back benign. I did not have cancer, but I had cellular, uh, when I had erosion and you know your esophagus, that's pretty serious. Uh, The stomach is a little more able to heal and to deal with that type of thing. But I also had cellular change, which cellular change is usually the beginning of precancerous cells. Mm -hmm, It's kind of the before mm -hmm. you get precancerous and then cancerous cells. So the specialist told me at that time, he said, you have got to figure out a way um, to come off of the medications you're on because I was on very high doses of a a lot of different stomach acid and and stomach Mm -hmm. medications that you should not be on those doses of for prolonged periods of time or that high. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, you've got to figure out how to control all of this with the food that you eat or the next time you come back into my office and we run these tests, it will not be benign. You know, he's very Mm -hmm. upfront with me, which I'm very Mm -hmm. grateful for that that God put him in my path. Mm -hmm. And so I went, home. I had this long, we live so far out, about 45 minute drive home. And I had this huge stack of papers and I still remember it. And I was looking at these papers and I'm driving and I was like, this is my, this is my chance. I Mm -hmm. figure this out or I'm not going to be here when my kids get married Mm -hmm. or maybe even graduate from high school. And let me Mm -hmm. tell you that type of motivation Mm -hmm. really is a kick in the pants. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking at all of the ingredients that were in the foods that I was eating. And I realized as I looked at the ingredient labels, I couldn't pronounce half of them, probably Mm -hmm. over half of them. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what a good majority of them were. I didn't even know what I was eating. Right. And then I started really diving into our like food and nutrition and how is it raised? And we had had a vegetable garden at that point. And thankfully we're already raising our own um, grass-fed, grass-finished beef simply because my dad had always raised his own beef cattle and we were too poor to buy grain or anything else <laughs> like right. that. Grass, grew, right. grass grows for free and we could buy grass hay, honestly. Right. So we were kind of doing the cool thing, the healthy thing before we even knew that it was simply because that's right. what we could afford. Mm-hmm. Um, and So thankfully, I already had a couple of building blocks of things that were very good. But I realized at that time with our budget and what was available on the market, I have to say we've come a long ways. Like Costco's and there's there's Mm -hmm. a lot more organic, better options available than there were, goodness, that's almost 15 years ago now. Right, right. But at that time, I was like, the only way that I can either find these items or be able to afford them is we have to grow them ourselves. Right. 
And so I knew how to grow food because I'd been raised in that, but I had never done it while working a full-time day job. And none of my family members looking back historically on on the things that had been passed down to us um, had either because my mom was a stay-at-home mom for the most part. My Mm -hmm. grandmother uh, was a stay-at-home mom. And so they did all of this, but I had to figure out how do I do all of this while still working a day job where I'm commuting 36 right. miles round trip right. a day. Right. So that was really where all of the basis for the family garden plan and um, my preserving book, Everything Worth Preserving, that's really where the basis for all of those were born because I had to figure out how do I do this without killing myself, having good results um, mm-hmm. and still being able to put in these hours and how do I do it in a way that's sustainable year after year after year. Right. And so that's really where the family garden plan and and my um, book that came out after that on preserving the harvest that you hopefully grow by right. using those uh, came from. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. So briefly tell us what you're hoping the book will do for the reader. So from the reader's end, what are you hoping they'll get out of your books? Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that they will see one, how very doable it actually is because I break mm-hmm. it down. You know, for anybody, if you've been doing something for a very long time, it's really easy to forget like what it was for you in the beginning. Right. And anything new that we take on, uh, none of us are are born knowing any of it. Right. And so anything that new that we take on, we have to develop the skills and the bandwidth. And eventually it just becomes part of our everyday thing or our every season thing. But but we don't start there. And so my goal is with the books is to take the things that you— feel like you inherently know when you've done something for a long time and distill that down into very practical steps and a roadmap so that somebody who doesn't can come in and follow that along to then get that end result. With the caveat, because as we mentioned with gardening, there's all different gardening climates and and spaces, right? Some people mm-hmm. have large yards. Some people can only grow in a few pots. Um, right. So how did I convey that information so that it's not just a follow along, though there is that aspect, but so that somebody has the tools to be able to evaluate the space and the climate that they have and right. then be able to tailor this to their specificity mm-hmm. and still mm-hmm. get good results. Yes. Yes. So good. So good. So uh, uh, some of our listeners garden. Some of them would like to garden. They, they just are kind of maybe not sure where to start. So maybe if you could possibly just walk us through some of the basics of planting our food crops, you know, because that, that question even comes up if you, if you, even if you've planted a garden, if you have, you probably know there are some things you grew that you're like, I don't even know why I grew that, you know. Yes. Um, last year we had just this boatload of tomatoes. It's the only thing I got grown, was grown in our garden last year. And it's a long story why, but I won't bore you with it. But my husband, <laughs> we're trying to keep these tomato plants alive because we were doing a lot of traveling at the time and weeds were taking over and trying to keep it watered. And then critters were getting in because it was a brand new garden space. And, and so, you know, you learn the first year where are the weaknesses in the fence and all that. So I just chalked it up to, it was a learning curve last year. Okay. We, we know what we need to do for this next year. But it was so funny because all I had was tomato plants because I happened to have a whole bunch of starts that my daughter-in-law started. I thought, oh, I'll just plant those because that's what I have. So I planted, never got the rest of the garden in. And my husband goes, why are we growing these? I don't even like tomatoes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you're right. I mean, if, if, if things had gone as planned, I would have had enough ripe at one time to make this really great tomato sauce that recipe from my mom who has canned that tomato sauce for years. It's kind of a family recipe. That was kind of the goal, but that isn't what happened. We ended up just sort of randomly eating tomatoes through. So there's these things that we grow sometimes that we're like, I'm not even sure why I'm growing that just because it, it's something that everybody grows in their garden. So tell us about how we can sort of customize our basic, you know, how we plan our food crops. Yes. Okay. I love this because truthfully, it all starts in the planning phase. Mm-hmm. And what you just described is very, very common. And you can insert <laughs> any vegetable that you want there, like radishes, because they looked really pretty on the seed packet, you right. know, whatever it is. And so what I, my advice 
is to, if, now if you meal plan, I know some people are very great mm-hmm. meal planners. I am not actually. I do not set out a, a meal plan that has everything identified for what we're having, even for the week. I kind of mm-hmm. meal plan for about th- three days out just to make sure I have stuff thought, et cetera. Sure. So sure. look at what is it that your family is eating on a very regular basis. Right. And oftentimes we think that we know what that is, but then when we actually look at what it is that we are cooking, then we discover, oh, I didn't realize I used this many onions or I actually am using a ton of tomato, like whatever it may be. And and talking produce rice, fruit Mm -hmm. and vegetables in the context of this and, and herbs. So culinary herbs. So if you can track that for a couple of weeks, Mm-hmm. that will really give you, you'll be surprised. Most of us kind of cook the same thing over and over again or variations right. of it. We have our favorites. So if you can get a very good, true idea of what it is that your family's eating produce-wise and quantities. So this is mm. where the key part is. Yes. What it, and quantity. So if you use, you know, two cups of tomato sauce or, you know, a cup of green beans, it, you know, just Calculate that out. I've got some free charts so that people can download. They do come in the book, but some of the charts that can help people with this for tracking wise, we have okay. available on the website. So I'll share a link to that. It's at melissakinoris.com. So once you've done that, then you're going, and this is where you look at this. I recommend that you pick the foods that you're eating the most of on a most consistent basis. Because right. one, if you're growing those, you're going to be cutting down your food budget because it's something you eat a lot. Mm -hmm, And you'll mm -hmm. have the health implications because anything, as soon as it's picked, begins to lose its nutrients. So Mm -hmm. if you are picking something that, and if it's grown at home, most home gardeners are not using a lot of the large agriculture practices that are actually stripping the soil of minerals and vitamins and macro micronutrients, which is why our food today is not as nutritious as it was even 50 years ago, because right. the food can only absorb from the soil what's in the soil. And, and we've got some modern farming practices that strip the soil, um, even with using um, synthetic nitrogen, et cetera. So that's a different right. topic. But yes. my point is your food will be more nutritious. So you are going to see an impact not only on your grocery bill, but also on your health, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And especially if it's food that you eat the vast majority of the time. So once you've identified what those are, then you do have to look at, will these grow in my climate? So for example, mm-hmm. where I live, we get too cold for me to grow bananas. So even if my family eats a lot of bananas, I know that they're not going to grow there. Now you might not know that inherently. So it's going to take, this is where a little bit of work comes in. And you're going to have to, to look up the growing conditions and a really easy classification is, is it a warm weather crop or a cool weather crop when we're talking mm-hmm. about vegetables? And right. the difference there is warm weather crops like a tomato, for example, and most of the things that we'd think of in a summer vegetable garden. So corn, green beans, all of your cucumbers. So all of your summer squash, winter squash, pumpkins, um, pepper plants, eggplant, those will not survive a frost. And right. if you're Overnight temperatures start to get below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't kill them, but it puts them into a hibernation stage and they just don't grow very fast. And most of the time, they're not going to produce fruit for you. So that's your your definition of what a warm weather crop is. And the cool weather is just the opposite. They like those cooler weathers. They will withstand some mild frost. And if you are like in the higher 30s, ideally about the 40 to low 50 degree weather range, they're going to grow and flourish. Mm. So it's important to know the differences there because your climate is going to dictate how much of those you can grow and when. Right, right. right. So after you've went through that list and said, okay, these are the foods that we eat a lot of that I want to try to grow at home. Will these grow in my climate? So that's going to just help help you naturally cross some things off. I can't grow sweet potatoes. That's one of the few vegetables we can't mm-hmm. grow here mm-hmm. on the west side of Washington State. We're, we're just not warm enough for long enough during the summer months. So I still choose to buy those somewhere else, but I know that it's not something that we can grow. So that's going to naturally give you a selection and help you pare this down so that it feels more manageable when you go to start to grow these things. Now, the second part of this is then figuring out if your goal is to raise enough to feed your family, not just through 
when it's in season. So when the garden is growing, and of course we want to do that. But if you want to be able to preserve some of that food to then feed your family in the off season and ideally stop having to buy it even from the grocery store like ever, Mm -hmm. then you're Mm going to need to know how much to plant based upon how much your family is eating that. So the interesting thing is, is I would see lots of charts online. Like you can Google or whatever your search engine of choice is. Um, how much should I plant of green beans for my family for a year? And you'll get some averages. There's charts all over the place. Right. However, that doesn't take into account how often you actually eat green beans. Mm-hmm. which is why we did the before work of how often are you actually eating and how much? Because right. we do have an average of what a plant will produce during its average growing season and lifespan. And for vegetables, the majority of vegetables are annual, so they're only going to grow that one growing season. And so that is some of the charts. I have it available for free on the Family Garden Plan book um, page on my website, or if if you grab the book, it's in there. And so it walks you through knowing how many of those plants you would plant based on average yield per plant, and then how much your family eats for a year of that item based on your average. Right. And then also in in this, we're, we're factoring, you said warmer weather and colder weather, but also there are zones. I know, I know that some gardeners people who garden know this, but people who don't aren't aware of like the zone. So when well, you're going zones, to buy your seeds. No, 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 no. Actually, sorry. That's, gardening zones don't matter for vegetable gardens. Gardening zones only matter no. for your perennials. So gardening zones um, in the U.S. are where it is broken down by location, geographical location. Mm-hmm. And it's by the lowest average 10 degrees that your area experiences in a winter. Okay. And when you plant annual vegetables, you are planting them based on your average first and last frost dates. Okay. So zones mm-hmm. have nothing to do with planting your vegetable garden or growing a vegetable garden. Where your zone comes in handy is if you are planting berry bushes, fruit trees, perennial right. plants, meaning they come, they die back and then they come back every year and produce, uh, because you need to know if it will survive your winters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is the mm-hmm. only purpose that zones have for, for, for food production gardening. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. That is really good to know. And it's interesting because having moved from Washington State to North Carolina, it's a completely different you know, the whole thing is just different. The soil is different. The climate is different. And so I found it fascinating here that they can grow two crops of corn in, in, in the, because the season is so long. That just blew my mind. Um, so that was kind of a fun thing to find out that we really do have so much good weather for growing things, but then we also have the sweltering heat. <laughs> so it's knowing when, to plant those things and when not to. Yes. And that is something that we walk, I walk through in the book. Um, and, the, and there's charts from like A to Z mm-hmm. <laughs> on your vegetables and your fruit, but especially your vegetables on your seed starting and or sowing times. And because mm-hmm. it all revolves around your first and last average frost date, because that's going to look different for you and it's going to look different for me, obviously. And even um, this is where a lot of people get confused with zones because you'll see somebody will share things online and say, I'm planting my tomatoes and I'm gardening zone seven. And so someone else who is inexperienced in gardening will um, will see that. And so then when they plant something, they automatically put their zone in there. So so people who are, who are inexperienced think, oh, well, I'm gardening zone seven. So that's when I'm supposed to plant this too. However, you can have um, be gardening zone seven because you have the same average low temps in the wintertime um, on opposite sides of the country. Mm, so mm-hmm, for example, mm-hmm. I'm on the coastal side of the Pacific and I'm gardening zone six, but you can have areas that are up north that are gardening zone six and they can't plant until mid-June warm weather mm, crops, mm-hmm. but I can plant mid-May. And so the, the timing is very different when we're talking about vegetables. But the beauty of that is, is, um, is once you know what your first and last average frost state is, then you can look at any any crop and know when it is that you can plant that. You just plug in your, in the springtime, it's your last average frost date for mm-hmm. spring and summer gardening planting dates. And then in the fall, 
it's gonna be your first average frost date. And you're just counting back one way or the other for that to know when you can safely plant and or seed start those items for your own garden. Right, okay. Well, you know, there are, uh, again, there are moms with a variety of situations out there and they may have a bigger space, a smaller space. So can you tell us a little bit about planning our garden space? Um, if you can just kind of guide us through that that process and uh, and help maybe the moms specifically, I think you have the smaller spaces. Yeah. So if you have smaller spaces, one is seeing are there ways that you can go a little bit vertical. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is even if you are only growing in say a large, you know, round container plant. Mm -hmm. Well, if you decided to grow a whole bean or a cucumber, something that vines, Mm-hmm. then you could plant that at the back of the planter because as that grows up, anything that grows up vertical, right, is going to shade anything that would be in the front of it. So that's why we right. want to put it at the back. Right. But you can put an easy trellis or if you have a back deck that has, you know, posts that are going up it or railings or something like that, position the pot so that your cucumber or your pole bean, anything that is going to, to vine and be sprawling, um, can grow up that. And so then instead of using all of this space, and this even works in larger vegetable gardens or raised Mm -hmm, beds, et cetera, mm -hmm. but take advantage of growing vertically first. And so the plants that do best growing vertically are going to be your um, indeterminate tomato varieties. So those are the ones that vine and and need support as they grow throughout the summer. That's going to be cucumbers, Um, smaller winter squash varieties. So things like a delicata, an acorn, Mm -hmm. butternut Mm -hmm. squash, um, the small pumpkins, but not your big old, big jack-o'-lantern types, right? right? Those right. are way too large. Um, smaller melons, those could fall in there. Definitely pole beans, peas, something like that. And have some, and, and you might not have, you're like, oh, I don't have a deck or anything that I could put up. Well, you can just put some of those simple, especially for pole beans or peas. Um, you can just put like a, a little, um, not lattice, sorry, it's escaping me, but just, um, oh gosh. Just a small, some some poles, like put them in there and anchor them right. and just let them trial up there because they don't weigh mm-hmm. a lot when it's just a few. Right, And right. then at the front of, of that or the rest of the pot, then you can decide what am I going to put in here, the things that are um, smaller and more compact. So that could be, maybe it's lettuce. Maybe you're wanting to just grow right. your fresh greens. And the great mm-hmm. thing about that is lettuce is actually pretty quick growing. And so you can stagger so that even in the pot, because we're only going to eat so much fresh lettuce at a time, right? Even larger families. So you would sow a little, a a small section, like maybe three plants thinking, okay, when these come, I would, we would use three lettuce, um, heads of lettuce in a certain amount of time. And then the next week you would put a couple more seeds in. Mm. And then Mm -hmm. two to three weeks from then, you could put a few more seeds in. And then you have this continual lettuce. It's called succession planting. But you have Mm -hmm. this continual crop because lettuce grows relatively quickly um, and it doesn't have a huge uh, root space need. And so you could have lettuce that's coming in pretty much all year. And then you're also able to grow something else on the backside. Other options would be some of your your smaller and quick growing things like you could do radishes, you could do spinach. Um, Like there's really lots of options. The only thing for super small containers or smaller containers that I don't recommend um, would be um, root crops because they generally need some more space and they usually, with the exception of radishes um, and Mm -hmm. beets even, um, Mm -hmm. they need to have more space in order to to grow well. So I do, right. wouldn't recommend those for right. the I love part. the 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 uh, growing up idea because you know here because it gets so hot in the summer. If you have something growing maybe in an arch over mm-hmm. top of something else, you can actually continue growing something uh maybe something you use a lot of and but can only grow in the in the less hot seasons like lettuce or romaine. Well, you can grow it longer if it's shaded. So if you're growing your green beans over top of your lettuces and your things that tend to do a little better in the cooler weather, all of a sudden you extended your growing season for something you use all the time. So um, I love that idea. And also just the amount of space that it saves is amazing because all those viney things, (laughs) they can take up a lot of space in a garden. 
So yeah, so the whole idea of having them go up instead can just really be a a game changer for someone with a small area that they're, they're trying to garden. And the other great thing about it too is when it goes up like that, because you're essentially doubling your growing space without increasing the size of the, the garden or, right, or the soil that right. you're planting in. Um, some of the other things is just like is is mobility because mm-hmm. if it's up high, you know, you're not stooping over as much. It's easier yeah. to harvest. And mm-hmm. one of the other really great things is a lot of your fungal diseases, so powdery mildew, downy mildew, right. like a lot of those... When you start to grow vertical, like especially for cucumbers, mm-hmm. it is amazing the amount of disease that has been completely eliminated from my garden just ah. by going vertical. Even though I mm-hmm. have the space, we have a right. um, we have we have um, a forty acre farm and then our fifteen acre home farm. I have the space, but right. I still grow vertical in our home vegetable garden because it eliminates a lot of disease issues. That makes so much sense because it's not laying on the ground. It's not yeah. It's not exposed to all that. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to um, choosing our plant variety and seeds. I, I think this is something that especially uh, new gardeners might not know about. Like what, what are the best kinds of seeds? I know for me, I like to grow, um, I, I like to be able to keep the seeds from my plants um, so that I can save them for the next year. That's a whole other topic, but that is the coolest thing <laughs> yes. to be able to do. Seed um, saving is is an entire, probably podcast series, honestly, to, to fully go into it. Exactly. Yes. Do you have some, of, do you talk about some of that on your podcast? I do. I've got, okay. yes, I have seed saving. Um, we cover it some in the book as well, but I do oh, talk about it. Good. I've got several videos. Um, so seed saving is, is wonderful. And my family has been seed saving our own bean strains um, over a hundred years for a very mm. long, long time. Wow. And so I, seed saving is like very near and dear to my heart. I love talking about seed saving. So if seed saving is something that you think that you want to be able to do, then the most important thing that you need to know when selecting your seeds and deciding to buy them is you want to make sure that you're picking, they either say heirloom on them or open pollinated. And that means that you they will pollinate with other plants. So for the purpose of seed saving, you are going to need to research, is it a self-pollinating plant or a cross-pollinating plant if you want to seed save from it um, so that you don't have cross-breeding of things and getting an undesirable result. So I'll right. just leave that there because to dive fully into that, we won't yeah, have time. Yeah, that's a whole big thing. Yes. A whole big thing. So just know that if you want to seed save. But if you do think that you want to be able to seed save, you're like, well, I'm not sure. Like maybe, maybe not. We'll kind of see how the year goes. At least if you have planted open pollinated and or heirloom seeds to begin with, you have the option. Right. Right. If you buy hybrid seeds, then some people have tried to seed safe from seed safe from hybrid seeds. Most of the time you don't have success because hybrid seeds, now there's nothing wrong with hybrid seeds. Hybrid seeds are not genetically modified seeds and genetically modified seeds are not hybrid seeds. So hybrid seeds um, in the context of what you're buying from seed companies. Mm-hmm. If you're seed saving yourself and doing dif- different generations, then it gets much more micro than that. So- about the 1940s, you had seed companies who the the food landscape of how people were buying food and how we get our food really started to change about that time. Mm-hmm. You started to have large supermarkets. You started to have more and more people who weren't raising their own food or weren't buying it from a small local farmer. They are going to large grocery stores and you had larger food corporations that were coming in. And so they were looking to create plants that were perhaps more disease resistant, uh, perhaps traveled well and stayed longer after being picked without beginning Mm -hmm. to break down. Mm -hmm. They realized that people bought with their eye first. And so people wanted, when they were going to grocery stores and buying produce, the, the produce that was more uniform and bright in color, regardless if it tasted as good or not, that's what people bought because they were buying things without being able to t- taste test it, right? Right, right. Um, or, or knowing what it was like because they had never grown these items. So you really had the birth of hybrid seeds as we know it from that time period, and it's continued on. Mm-hmm. So hybrid seeds are where they take in a lab, but still the same plant type. So all tomatoes, um, you right, would have right. all green beans, all cucumbers, et cetera. So not crossing species here or or 
that type of thing. And they would look at, okay, this tomato plant is very prolific, but this tomato plant um, produces more uniform. So they would take those, those traits from those two tomato plants and they would put them together in order to create this new variety based mm-hmm. upon these very specific selections from these two parent plants. So not bad or, or not bad nor good, just is what it is. But the problem with this is when you try to seed save from these, the seed reverts back to one parent or the other. Mm-hmm. So you won't get the same tomato Product. that you grew right. in, in, in this tomato is what you, right, is what you're expecting. The other thing is, is a lot of times, not only will it just revert back to a parent plant, which isn't necessarily bad, but a lot of times because of the way that the, the, um, the different things were selected, <laughs> you'll either, sometimes they won't germinate, like they have a very low actual sprouting rate. So they're not necessarily sterile, um, but closer to it. And then when they do grow, not only do they revert back, but oftentimes they are unedible. Like they'll be extremely Mm. bitter no matter what the growing conditions and watering and all of that has been. So it's kind of one of those things where it's just, you're taking a real big gamble. Now on the flip side, some people have had, very rarely I will say from um, all of my time online and and doing lots of talking with with people, thousands of people, et cetera, every month, um, very rarely is it successful and desirable when Mm. you're doing this from your hybrid seeds. So you just know that you're just not going to seed save from them, but you're still getting a crop and that's fine. Now, where a lot of confusion has came in about genetically modified seeds, and a lot of times people say, oh, well, they've been, genetically modified seeds have existed for, that's how we have the plants we have now. No, that's the difference between um, breeding, plant breeding, um, and hybrid seed is not the same as genetically modified. So genetically modified seed, you cannot buy, you and I cannot buy it. Right. To get genetically modified seed, you are going to these GMO seed companies. You are getting a certificate. Those seeds are patented. Um, and it's it's completely different ballgame. They're sold in, in large quantities. It's, it's right. big. Um, it's commercial monocrop. farming. It's commercial farming. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you and I can't buy it. But here's where we need to understand that is specifically with, with the highly genetic modi- genetically modified crops that are grown in the U.S. So corn, soy, um, some of your beets, um, et cetera, are genetically modified. And the way that those cross-pollinate, so corn is a, remember when I was talking early, self-pollinating versus Um, Mm cross-pollinating. All of your squash and all of your corn are cross-pollinators. The way that corn cross-pollinates in the right conditions, it can cross-pollinate up to five miles away. And Mm. so when you have these huge cornfields, right? Um, and you've got when the wind conditions and it's flat land and all the things that it can cross pollinate that far from one That's another. Amazing, right? And that almost all of your commercial crops are genetically modified. What we've seen happen since genetically modified crops really came on the scene, almost all, not all, but almost all of your sweet corn is part. It has cross-pollinated, unfortunately, with genetically modified corn. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to find pure strain. So that's where a lot of people, um, even though, no, you can't buy it at the grocery store, a lot of people will look to companies that have a safe seed pledge um, Mm -hmm. or who test for that um, and are only wanting to grow heirloom corn to try to keep the strains pure or to avoid GMOs. So GMOs is something that I avoid um, in in my health journey. So- but that being said, you're not going to go buy them directly on the store shelf. Um, and the difference, so genetically modified seeds, it's not just crossing within same plant variety. So genetically modified seeds are when they take DNA, sometimes it's from other plants that could never cross-pollinate. You're not going to ever be able to cross-pollinate naturally in nature, um, you know, a, um, like a, uh, sorry, a melon plant um, with an eggplant, right? They're right. just not, right. that's not going to happen. Um, so they will do that part. They will also take DNA from actual animals. So they could take DNA from a a fish or something else and put it into this vegetable plant. Mm. Um, they can also take uh, chemicals. So for in the example of corn, so 
Roundup, which many of us know glyphosate right. um, is, mm-hmm. is a quite um, harmful chemical that we have abundant, unfortunately, in our food supply in the U.S. And they will actually take some of that and manipulate the gene in the corn so that it's in that corn seed so that when they spray the fields with Roundup, it doesn't kill the corn. Then that's in the DNA of that plant. Mm. So I am not comfortable with that. No, (laughs) no, me neither. No, right? And I don't think most people are, but a lot of times people just don't understand actually what the GMO means versus hybrid. So that's kind of, that is the um, real large overview of of what that means. So- Great. Hybrid seeds are totally fine. If you do want to seed save, I would recommend looking at heirloom or open pollinated. Those are the, the okay. two keywords there that you're going to want to look at. Great. And fortunately, there is more and more of that available on the market, which is fantastic. Yeah. All right. So we just have a couple of minutes left. Real quickly, share some of your favorite hacks for preserving the harvest from our gardens, because I was blown away by, by some of these ideas. It never crossed my mind to pull a cabbage plant and then put it back in the hole upside down to (laughs) preserve it. It, So you don't have to do anything with it. It stays in the ground. It stays at the right temperature. The roots are sticking out. So whenever you want a head of cabbage, you just go out there and pull it up. I was like, where has this been all my life? This is fantastic. Yeah, you know, and a lot of this is just because this is before refrigeration that we have now and, and freezing and all, which is right, relatively right. new. And if yes. you look at this, the whole span of, of humanity, it's relatively new. And so a lot of these are just really old ways that are really not that old. We're talking like a hundred years ago. Most people right, didn't know right. that. But because we've so progressively went away from that in just a couple of generations, a lot of this isn't commonplace, but it used to be. And right. and I feel very fortunate. Um, I didn't as a kid appreciate it. Sure, <laughs> but now sure. I'm like, oh, wow. You know what? My, I had my grandma, my grandparents, and my dad and stuff who lived without refrigeration or electricity um, all throughout his childhood. And so these were things that were more commonplace for them. Right. Right. And I just got the benefit of, of being a little bit closer to that generational-wise than most people my age. So the caveat to that is growing your cabbage so that it comes to harvestable size right as you're moving into your cooler weather and fall. Right, right. And so that's when that's going to really work. So you're basically using the ground as a root cellar without having an actual root cellar. So we're using root cellar techniques. Um, And of course, if you live in an area where it is down to negative or even like five degrees, then you're going to have to really mulch that cabbage or you're going to have to pull it before those those come. And it just gives you some extra months of time uh, between between when those happen, depending on your climate. But some other easy ones, you're talking about your tomatoes and how you didn't have enough on at one time to do sauce. So this is one of my favorite hacks. And I, not only do I not usually have time to make my tomato sauce in the height of summer because we have so many other things happening on the farm, I don't have air conditioning because typically in the Pacific Northwest, right. with the exception of the past it. couple of years, you don't need mm-hmm. it. Like barely any homes here have air conditioning. Um, I'm trying to think, I know, I think three people that that I know for sure have air conditioning in their house. Um, a lot of times people put little window units in, but it's just not right, something that's right. there. So I am not looking in the middle of August when my tomatoes start coming on. There is no way that I want to have stuff simmering on my stovetop in the kitchen in the middle of August right. without air conditioning. So, and if you don't have enough on at one time to even make it, you can't make sauce and it's not worth your bother. I throw them in the freezer and I throw them in skin and all. All I do right. is I pick them and take the stem off and throw those bad boys in the freezer. You don't need to do anything else beforehand. And then when you have enough and or time allows, pull them out, let them thaw. And here's the beautiful part. Once frozen and then thawed, the skin just literally slips off. So you don't have to blanch them to get the skins off, which is phenomenal. That's amazing. So- I just freeze all my tomatoes until the fall. And then I just have a couple of like really big sauce making days once we've right. started to cool down. Right, right. Now tell 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 the moms about carrots. What what about those carrots? Okay. How can we preserve I those? do this, I do this with carrots and I do this with potatoes. Carrots are m- more hearty than the potatoes. Again, de- depending on your climate, right, how cold your right. winters get, how deep your, your ground will freeze. I leave my carrots in the ground all winter long. I leave my mm-hmm. potatoes in the ground all winter long. I mulch the potatoes 
And then I just go and harvest them when need be. Now we have um, six inches of snow on the ground right now. We're supposed to get another, I don't know, six to eight inches this afternoon. So there is a little caveat to that if you do that. Now I can leave mine in the ground all winter. Um, I know how I mulch with about four to six inches of straw and they stay just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but I know then when a snowstorm is coming or a really deep freeze where I am not going to want to be out there trying to dig anything out, then I just go (laughs) and harvest stuff for like, okay, I think this will last for, you know, we'll probably have snow on the the ground. Next week or whatever. Yeah, for a week or two. And so I'll just Mm -hmm. pull enough and it'll be totally fine for that short period of time. So a little bit of caveat there, but there's a lot of things that you can do that with. And then- The great thing about the carrots is if you planted heirloom or open pollinated carrots and you do this. So carrots are a biennial. So they're not a perennial, meaning they come back every year, but they don't produce seed until their second year of growing. So if you Mm -hmm. leave some of the carrots in the ground for overwinter, then the next spring, don't pull them all, leave some of them. And they will start to grow their green again, but then they'll develop beautiful blossoms, these big white umbula, beautiful blossoms that will turn into carrot seed. And that is how you get your your carrots. So you don't have the bother of harvesting them all at once and preserving them. Let the ground do it. And then you'll have carrot seed forevermore. This is fantastic. I love it. I love it. I'm just, I'm so thankful that you're here today and you have so much wonderful information. So moms, I'm going to direct you to the all the links we're going to put in the show notes. If you want to hear more, learn more, listen to more, um, you're, you just go to those links and you can connect with Melissa there. Um, so uh, again, Melissa, thank you for being with us today and just for all the wisdom you had to share. And um, I Hopefully, maybe sometime we'll have you back again. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was very nice to meet you. Um, I wish we had met before you moved, but I thank know, you. I know. Yes. Okay. Well, moms, I'm just going to tell you one last um, sponsor that I want to tell you about. Love XL College. They have an amazing summer leadership camp that my friends at XL College, they actually hosted. And we know that it's no secret now Um that more than ever before, it's vital for our teens to learn to think critically and live wisely as they navigate the world and become who God made them to be. So my friends over at XL College are passionate about helping young leaders um, learn to discover God's truth, discern wisely and live wholeheartedly and have fun doing it. So if the teen in your home wants to grow in their faith while building lifelong friendships and going on the adventure of a lifetime, send them to XL College's Summer Leadership Camp. It's a transformative journey where they will go on thrilling adventures like camping, rock climbing, and whitewater rafting, but also receive expert training and certifications in categories from CPR to wilderness first aid. All you have to do is apply at the Excel camp org. Select Dorinda Wilson for $100 off the camp. And I will leave a link in the show notes. So it makes it easy for you to go check that out. Thanks for being here today, moms. Have a great day. 